Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, EJ. It's 9.15 at night. I have my second triple shot of espresso of the day. We have two more episodes to do. Welcome to Bootleg After Dark. It's Niners Day, and we're doing this one at night, uh, hoping beyond hope that nobody keeps setting off fireworks in the fucking background. <laughs> We've been trying to avoid those all day and, and being very unsuccessful at it. But uh, yeah, lots to talk about today with the 49ers. Yeah, we're going to have some fireworks of our own on the episode. Probably some outside the window, too. So be prepared for very loud booms. But I think that's probably a decent slogan for the 49ers last year. Be prepared for very loud booms. We're going to see some of the best numbers we've seen in the entire series and talk about everything they did to try and keep that lofty status in 2023. It's a fascinating team because everybody acknowledges that they're elite, but also... uh, Nobody knows when uh, this Cinderella story is going to turn back into a pumpkin because it feels like they're kind of on borrowed time. But a lot to go over today uh, between schematic breakdowns, personnel additions, coaching turnover. Uh, it's, it's a lot. Buckle up. So, Jay, roll the intro. Welcome back once again to the Bootleg Football Podcast. If you don't know us, I'm Brett Coleman. Here's my wonderful co-host, EJ Snyder. We are in the midst of our 40-episode-long off-season series where we dedicate one show per team and an additional eight shows to all eight divisions. It's uh, eight or nine straight weeks of doing this, and uh, it's, it's probably our best and uh, most valuable thing we do all year. And very rarely do we get to talk about a team this good, like the San Francisco 49ers. They are near the top, certainly were last year. In fact, we're going to see the highest bootleg power score we've seen yet in the series. And a little foreshadowing, it's going to remain right near the top of the list uh, throughout all these 32-team episodes. This was a very powerful organization last year. I don't think anybody that watched them on the field, especially in the second half of the year, would argue with that. They were crushing teams offensively, defensively. We're going to go over all those numbers. Um, But it's kind of fun to look. One of the things about looking at all the teams in the league is we get to see the teams that were the absolute worst and the teams that were the absolute best. And the 49ers were among them last year without question. It really is, you know, maybe the only team in the league that doesn't have a true weakness. And, And you could argue that, even quarterback last year wasn't a weakness because they got better once Brock Purdy got in there, uh, even over Jimmy Garoppolo, the established veteran, um, and even over Trey Lance, who's the young, promising rookie that they gave a king's ransom for. You know, Brock Purdy arguably outplayed both of them in the in the time that we saw him on the field. 
again, caveat, haven't seen a whole lot of Trey Lance, but the results are the results, right? You know, this was a championship team with a seventh round Mr. Irrelevant quarterback, and they not only didn't stop chugging, but they were arguably at the height of their powers over the last five weeks. I mean, shit, they finished 5-0 and uh, during the, the home stretch of the regular season. You kind of can't argue with that. So again, this is one of the very few rosters where you could try to poke holes in it all you want, but it's it's pretty hard to complain. Very difficult to do. Very well-assembled roster. And again, in terms of the scheme that they've put together, they do a better job of matching players to that scheme than most organizations in the NFL. Not all, certainly. There are teams that do it a little bit better, but um, it is very difficult to say the 49ers don't know what they're looking for or don't know how to use those players once they get them. When I was up at their training camp last August, um, it was really striking to me how different they looked relative to a lot of other NFL teams that I've seen up, up close and in person, whether in practice environments or in game environments, um, being down on that field and kind of feeling the speed of that team. They just felt better than everybody. And it kind of played out that way on the field. I mean, you don't go 13 and four with three different, maybe four different quarterbacks if you count Christian McCaffrey uh, on accident, right? Like, it's just a different level of talent there. Uh, it's a different level of coaching there. Now, we'll see what happens without D'Amico Ryans because he was arguably the best defensive coordinator in the league, um, who's now in Houston, obviously. But as long as Kyle Shanahan's there, they're never going to be wanting for more points, I would say. Uh, he is... Is it sacrilegious to say he's a better offensive play caller and designer than his dad? Is that just recency bias for me? Because I, I, I kind of feel so. like he is. I think he presents an equal strength to his dad. Their games are slightly different. They're based in a lot of the same roots. But he's continued, the younger Shanahan has continued to innovate. It's not just him trying to run his dad's offense. And frankly, if he was, it wouldn't work. The, well, the thing is, changed. I have his dad's playbook from '98, mm -hmm. I think it was, and I have Kyle's playbook from 2019. I also think it was. Kyle's is a hell of a lot thicker. <laughs> like it's it's crazy how detailed that offense is. Not that Mike's wasn't, but it just feels like he took everything that his dad did and then just perfected it. And it felt like a base that he's built off of to adapt and change as the league has adapted and changed as somebody that watched both of those eras pretty extensively and continues to watch the younger's work. He has managed to build something. And I think if you're talking about where he might be better than his dad, I think he might be a better play caller in terms of stringing plays together, setting up a defense keeping people off balance. He might be the best at that in the league right now. What I did find interesting, you know, speaking of their offense last year, when you think of the Niners, everybody thinks, okay, dominant running game and a complimentary pass game. Mm -hmm. Last year was the first time in a while where it was kind of the opposite. They were a bottom third, if we're just going by EPA, right? They were a bottom third rushing attack, likely not even likely, definitely because the first half of the year dragged them down. And then once they got Christian McCaffrey, they ticked up a little bit and climbed to the 20th position. <laughs> Meanwhile, the passing EPA 
was amongst the best in the NFL. They were third. And most people don't think of the Niners no, that way. It's the other way. But that's just kind of what they are now. It's an extremely flexible offense, and I don't even think before last year that we thought of them as as flexible as they are or showed to be, especially down the stretch. So 2022 results, overall record for them, 13-4, and four, which is exemplary, first in their division, home record 8-1, and one, sterling home record, road record 5-3, and three, and then like you mentioned earlier, the last five games, they were absolutely blasting, 5-0, and oh, perfect record just mashing their way into the playoffs and they felt unstoppable healthy they that team felt like it was gonna win the super bowl healthy even with a healthy patrick mahomes you know leading up to the playoffs it felt like with that defense that D'Amico had put together and the fact that brock purdy and shanahan were managing this offense in the way that they were and coming up with points every week it felt sort of inevitable well, things happened at the end of the year. We'll talk about that. But in terms of their effectiveness summary, if we look at the full 17-game slate, because you did mention that early season and later season were two different stories, two different books. Lots of things changed after the Christian McCaffrey trade and after Brock Purdy ascended to the starting role. But in terms of the effectiveness summary, this is using EPA per play to talk about how good this team was on offense, how good they were on defense against the run, and against the pass or running and passing. We also talk about points scored overall. They were very good in that category and points they allowed. They were excellent in that category because D'Amico <laughs> Ryans ran a great Literally scoring Literally number one in the NFL. <laughs> That's right. So we take all of their league ranks for these six numbers. And again, this is like golf scoring. You want to be number one. So a lower score is better. And the only blemish, if you want to talk about it that way on their record, was the rushing offense. EPA, 20th in the league. Again, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, they certainly were struck by injuries earlier in the year, and McCaffrey wasn't there for the whole year. I would imagine that number would be quite a bit higher. It typically is when we're talking about 2023. You talked about the passing offense. Amazing production, especially out of a Niners team that I think a lot of people thought couldn't pass. They were third in the league. Rush defense. Here we get into D'Amico Ryans and the mastery of him calling a defense. I think he's the equal in terms of a play caller to Shanahan on offense, except mm -hmm. he's doing it on defense. Rush defense, second in the league. Pass defense, fourth in the league. Points scored, back to Shanahan, sixth most points scored in the entire NFL. Points allowed, number one, with a bullet. They only allowed 277 points. So when you look at all those ranks, 20th, third, second, fourth, sixth, and first, you take those six numbers, Add them up, divide by six, we get the bootleg power score. It's a six. I don't think anybody else is that. Like maybe Buffalo? Like that that's probably the lowest, which is best, by the way, again, with, with golf rules here. I don't know if anybody else is like that. <laughs> no, and nobody else has as high a score on both sides of the ball. There are teams that have, you know, top ten rankings on both sides of the ball, but you know, offense is like seventh and ninth and the defense might be fourth and second but nobody is three two four six and one if they had just even an average run game in terms of epa per play they would have cracked four or five which is just unheard of yeah it's absolutely ridiculous it's a special team it's a special score it is you know 
spoiler alert, going to stay right up near the top of the power rankings. We will talk about how all the teams stack up when we get to the end of the series. We'll also talk about how the divisions stack up based on their scores against each other. We'll have all that wrap up as we go along. But uh, yeah, write six down in your notebook as the uh, leader in the clubhouse. Again, I want to give some added context for the Rush EPA just because so many people are probably shocked by how below average, <laughs> average it is. You know? yeah. um, they started out real, real rough, and they had to climb up from there, again, with Christian coming over, and again, they ticked up as the year went on. Um, but they started out super unproductive on the ground. Do you know that through Halloween, they only had one occurrence of anyone on the Niners getting 100 yards rushing. Yes. And it was Jeff Wilson who got 80 of those 120 yards in that game on three carries, and the rest of his carries, I believe he averaged like two and a half. A two, yeah. Know. It was, and it was very boomer bust, which that lack of efficiency is why EPA was low because it wasn't an efficient run game. They had some real big boom, some real big pops and explosives, but it was not something they could hang their hat on to be efficient and consistently put the offense in a winning position. It set them up with a lot of second and longs, third and longs, everything like that, and that's generally going to drag your EPA down. Um, high, quote-unquote high, EPA run games are the ones that consistently give you second and five, not second and eight. And it wasn't until they got McCaffrey consistently giving them four and five-yard gains on first down when their run game started to actually do things for them. So that's why it took so long for them to to climb up there. In terms of uh, kind of added contextual statistics here, we will start with the run game. Uh, typically, we start with the defense, but while we're on the topic of the run game, they were typical Kyle Shanahan, top five in outside zone calls, about 36%, hell of a lot more than most teams in the NFL. Uh, also typical Kyle Shanahan, not leaning too much into inside zone. They were 24th in inside zone. They were 29th in duo. They were ninth in power. That one actually kind of took me by surprise. Mm -hmm. I do know that they have uh, more athletic guards than most teams, which is why they love outside zone so much. But apparently they really wanted to kind of pull those guys a lot more last year as well. So that was something that I found super interesting. And, and we'll kind of see if they continue that in 2023. Because I just, I don't think of Shanahan being a power heavy run game but apparently last year it was um they were seventh in counter which if you watch the seahawks episode you know that a lot of outside zone heavy teams are also pretty heavy in counter because counter is what counters a lot of the fronts that are pretty good against outside zone um they were 15th in draw and then they were uh, 20th in pin and pull so fairly similar numbers to uh to what we see from seattle other than just being a lot higher in power uh, and also fairly similar overall to what we're used to from a Kyle Shanahan offense in San Francisco. Feels a lot like the Cleveland line to me. When mm -hmm. you have five very talented linemen, I would say four especially very talented linemen, that can do a multitude of things, and you have an architect of a run game like Shanahan, and we're comparing him in this case to Kevin Stefanski in Cleveland, you can do a lot of interesting things, and you can mesh what we would typically think of as man run concepts, power and outside zone and do it well because any of your five offensive linemen can do multiple things, but they have two road graders at the guard spots, Burford and Banks. Like those guys are huge, both yeah. of them. And when you put those guys on 
I'm saying duo meaning double blocks with very talented tackles, a future Hall of Famer and a guy that's, you know, Hall of Very Good, you're going to move people. So you can be effective on the inside when they start to load up against you getting those excessive gains on the outside. You are extremely well-schooled and coached and you execute counter very well. That becomes a gash play. It makes it so defenses can't have the right answer. Uh, by the way, for people that recently watched the Outside Zone episode, I want to clarify, we're talking double, meaning double teams. Yes. Because Shanahan uh, also, he, what he calls double right. is like the, the front side combo between the guard. And the, it's a whole it's a whole thing. We'll throw up the graphic on the, yeah. in terms of what he calls things. I don't know why Kyle does that, by the way, because we typically think of a double team. And then he's like, no, this is a double block. And it's like. So it, it's it's two guys on one. He's like, no, it's because it's it's with the guard and the tackle. Okay, so what's a single? Well, that's with the center and the guard. And then a triple is with the tackle and the tight end. And a quad is with two tight ends. It's like, fucking hell, Kyle. Just call it a double team. <laughs> People wonder <laughs> why I don't dive into X's and O's on Twitter, especially. And it's funny. I just had this conversation this last week with Nate Tice because somebody was lighting him up about some proprietary name for a technique right oh the the diamond release uh -huh. thing yeah. yeah and i said hey man i don't do it either because somebody like three years ago took me to the wall because i said boundary corner meaning a player that plays corner outside and in their particular oh, system they thought you meant boundary side of the in field. their particular system oh. boundary meant a single side and i was using it non-exclusively and they were pissed and this is what happens when you really dive into x's nose and one of the reasons i have a lot of respect for all the patience you have with doing it is because going from one system to the next and we just talked about it with shanahan one thing is called one thing in one system and another thing's called another thing in another system and people get really 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 hung up on it so i was talking to well, one of my coaching buddies who apparently so sean mcveigh had like different terms for all these different blocks and Again, it was confusing with some of the players who had heard different terminology. And so he apparently adopted Kyle's terminology for all these blocks just to make it easier for guys to freaking learn it. Because he's like, I know you already know it. I know it. I know you know what it is. We just got to use the same word. Sign of a good teacher. Yes. Right. <laughs> to realize that your, your whole job as a coach, which is teaching, is to get across your idea, your concept as cleanly as you can and make it sort of acceptable or learnable as quickly as you can. And when you have these layers of complication, and there are many in football, it's a sign of a great teacher, a great coach to adjust to say, hey, I'm in the way here. I'm keeping this, I'm keeping you all from learning this as quickly and as cleanly as I can. And I'm gonna make the shift because that's the result I want and we're not getting it. And some coaches will do that and some coaches won't. By the way, for, for added context, even more added context, right. we want to know what uh, boundary side means for that particular person. Um, a lot of coaches, uh, you can align your defense, strong side versus weak side. You can align your defense, passing strength, you know, because uh, sometimes consider strong side, oh, where the tight end is. Sometimes uh, they consider strong side where, you know, the majority of the receivers are. There's a bunch of different ways to consider strength, right? Um, and then some defenses align what's called field versus boundary 
or short side versus open side, wide side, wide side versus, yeah. you know, um, so I think if you're lined up on the hash, uh, the shorter side of the field, the more compressed side, they'll call the boundary side and the wider side, they'll call the field side. So it's like, oh, the field side of the field. And it's it, it's it's word salad, but <laughs> it's just a coaching term that people use. And it's fucking annoying how everybody thinks that their words are the correct ones when it's like it's all made up. It's mumbo jumbo. Yeah, it helps to cut through a lot of that and and the way that I, when I do wade into that particular pond, try to do that is uh, the same way that, you know, Nate responded to me is like, the concept is the same. Yes. And that's true. You want to cut down to what is the concept? What is the technique? Like, what are we trying to do? If, if you're saying diamond release, what is that? Well, it's an outside release that has a bunch of variations which is why they call it diamond, because you can do it in a bunch of different ways. You can well, do it quick and or short. It, and it looks like a half diamond. Right? right, yeah. So, But if you say outside release, that's the plain language version of diamond. Or you can try and be fancy and say diamond and have somebody say, what's that, and then take them apart. What do you want to spend your time doing? I would rather get down to what are they trying to accomplish, what's the technique, and not get stuck in the word salad. And what Nate was like, what Nate was saying was, Oh, so you're selling the fade and cutting inside. And again, this this is nothing against the person who had learned it as diamond release. That's just what they had learned, right? Um, and then when they came across somebody who, A, had coached at a high level and whose dad coached at the highest level for a long time. Like, yeah, Nate was a coach at Pitt, right? Like, he's, he's done it. He's been around it. Uh, and who had an entirely different terminology for everything uh, that it's just... Different languages clashing on Twitter. Right? Universal translator, right? How yeah. can you get down to what this really is? And once you both sort of establish that baseline of what we're really talking about is, it's a lot simpler than it sounds with everybody spewing double, single, you know, quad, inside zone, duo. Like we the backside combos are literally called A, B, C, D. Right. <laughs> in like, one system, but not in other But systems. not in all systems. Like, we yeah. call that RAM. And yeah. you're like, oh, well, great. It What is it? Like, oh. We call it swoop. That's right. It's a double fuck, block okay. on the backside. Okay. That's, that's <laughs> the concept. So one of those reasons I, I tend to avoid that because it can be uh, maddening and frustrating and, and exhausting, quite frankly, when you're really just trying to get down to what are you trying to do? Okay. Let's not worry about what we call it. Anyway, tangent aside, <laughs> tangent aside, uh, looking at the passing offense, which we sung the praises of uh, so much, and this one's kind of interesting to me because it's hard to ignore the Brock Purdy effect, <laughs> or rather the the effect of Jimmy G's absence. I want to give a preamble here. Because, again, when we think of the Kyle Shanahan offense in the passing game in particular, what do we think of? Play action. Everybody's always thought of this as a very play-action-heavy uh, play system. They were at 22% play action last year, which was 25th in the league. Yeah. If you go back and you look at Jimmy Garoppolo's healthy years, they were much higher in average in play action. In 2018, where he missed most of the year, they were 24th. In 2019, where he didn't miss most of the year, he, he was healthy and he played, they were 8th. In 2020, where again, he was dealing with a bunch of injuries, starting with that <laughs> Jets game in like week 2 or week 3, whatever that was, they were 21st. 
And then in 2021, when he was healthier again, they were 14th. And then we got to last year where uh, it was the Trey Lance show, and then it was the Jimmy show, and then it was eventually the Brock Purdy show, uh, and they were 25th. I get the sense that with Kyle, in terms of how he structures his offense, where he's always going to play to his players' strengths, he used play action quite a bit in order to open up the area of the field where Jimmy was at his strongest, which is the short, intermediate, middle area of the field. He wanted to affect linebackers to get them out of the way. You look at Brock Purdy, who again, also very good at throwing short, intermediate, quick, over the middle, blah, 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 blah. But uh, I don't think that Kyle felt he needed to use play action as much to give Purdy the windows that he likes to throw into. We did see Purdy throw more outside the numbers than Jimmy typically does. We saw Purdy throw more down the field uh, than Jimmy typically does. Not that he was like really slinging it down there, but again, it was more. It was more than we're used to. Um, And so I, I just think the fact that Purdy kind of unlocked more than we're used to uh, in terms of accessing different areas of the field means that they didn't need to rely so much on play action, thus that number being that way. Um, what I'm curious to see, because <laughs> it sounds like Purdy's in the lead for the job for this year, but let's just say Trey Lance comes out and just absolutely fucking lights it up all through August, and Lance gets the job. Does that number suddenly go back up? People have written Lance off at this point. I think that is a mistake, personally. The offense that we saw last year, whether Purdy is playing or not, uh, I I still think we're in for quite a bit of change. The quarterbacking is a way to sort of I don't know, use it as a keystone to see where this offense might go. You talked earlier about the complexity and the depth of that playbook. So a lot of people think, oh, when Brock Purdy came in, they just like came up with a bunch of new plays. No, they really just opened up a different chapter and said, oh, we never really got to use this, sort of dusted it off. They're like, oh, my God, we can throw corner routes again? Right. (laughs) Go to chapter eight. Go to chapter eight. We never got there with Jimmy or rarely got there with Jimmy. Now we can get there all the time with Brock. And they will do the same if they transition to Trey. If that happens and Trey Lance becomes the the anointed starter at the beginning of the season. And I will say the beginning of the season because one thing we've seen with 49ers quarterbacks is just because they start the season doesn't mean they're necessarily going to end the season in the number one spot. But if that comes to pass, they'll do exactly the same thing. They don't have to write up a bunch of new plays. They're just going to go, oh, go to chapter 10 because he can, you know, he's even more mobile. He's even more comfortable throwing from the outside of the pocket than Brock is. So, oh, let's use all these plays because like they have this many plays. And each quarterback allows them to access a different section or highlight a different section of that playbook. And Shanahan is flexible enough to make that shift week to week, game to game with who's in there. And that's not just with the quarterback. Uh, He's had to do it with running back the last few years. Um, It's been very successful. They're fourth and fifth running backs or, you know, Chewing up yardage just like running backs one and two. Not many teams in the NFL you can say that about, both with you know talent acquisition, which we talked about at the top, and coaching flexibility to be able to change week to week and say, well, you know, we started off with whomever, 
Raheem Mostert, and we ended up with Jermichael Hasty. <laughs> well, at one like, point, let's go. At one point, they were given uh, Debo more carries than receptions because he was the only back left on the roster they could run outside. And I, I say the term back loosely, but he was the only player left on the roster they could run outside zone with. They couldn't run it with with the running backs that they had left after injury. That's why Debo started getting all those carries is because they literally couldn't do outside zone with anybody else. And that's when you know the contract thing happened with Debo where he's like, hey, if you're going to use me as like your emergency RB1, you better pay me. <laughs> and, and eventually they did. I kind of feel like that's why they got Christian is because they didn't want to have to get back into that spot again where they literally had to use Debo as a running back because they didn't have anybody else on the roster they could trust with it. And it's two for one because you get McCaffrey who is uh, fully featured and multifaceted, right? He's a great runner. He's extremely effective in the pass game. You can use him as a decoy. Uh, his dad was a wide receiver mm-hmm. famously in the NFL, so he's very good you know, splitting out wide and lining up. And it basically frees up Debo to do almost the same thing. Now you have two instead of just one. It's like, oh, we don't want to put carries on Debo. No, now we can use Debo wherever we'd like to, and we've got Christian, and we can still alternate him back there. He's not our number one, and he, he I think, chafes a little bit less about that in kind of being like a you know, change-up, third-down Change of pace just, back. He's just weapon, honestly. Right. That's what and he it, is. Yeah. It takes one weapon and unlocks another instead of saying, well, we don't have any other healthy running backs, so we have to take this very dynamic weapon in Debo and basically kind of lock him into the backfield, which he doesn't like, and kind of ties our hands. And if there's one thing that Shanahan really hates, it's having his hands tied offensively. Going through the other uh, you know, passing stats here, uh, they were very on brand in terms of getting the ball out quick. They've always gotten the ball out quick. Uh, when when Kyle's been there, uh, 2.67 seconds. That was sixth fastest in the NFL. Purdy was also quick on the draw, just like Jimmy was. So it wasn't super surprised by that. Also was not super surprised by their air yards percentage, meaning the percentage of their passing yardage that came through the air. They were dead last in the NFL. And I use the term last. Uh, I don't even know if that's if that's the correct word because it also means that they were first in yards after catch, right? That means that the flip side of the coin, 55% of their yards came after the catch. They were absolutely ridiculous with Yak, uh, which is why their yards per attempt was still third, even though most of their yardage came after the catch because they're so good at it. Uh, and Purdy was such a good distributor. And, you know, he was so accurate and so good at, at, at setting guys up to get yards after the catch. And they, again, like we mentioned with Debo, he's great after the catch. Kittle's great after the catch. Ayuk, Christian. They all are. All of them. Like, they literally build their offense around it, right? So, very par for the course there. Um, Big-time throws. They were 20th, which, again, even though Purdy stretched the field more, it's not like he was out there like Jalen Hurts just throwing bombs, right? It wasn't wasn't quite the same. So, that, that also wasn't super surprising. And then, uh, like we mentioned, average depth of target was also 27th because they were a more yak-based offense. But it worked because that's what they thrive on is, is spacing and timing and making good decisions. And 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 Purdy was able to, to, to execute that. Flipping over to the defensive side, the defensive stats, these are likely to change pretty substantially just because D'Amico's gone. But I did kind of find it interesting how they structured their defense last year because they were very heavy in cover three. They were eighth in cover three uh, because D'Amico Ryans will never, ever, ever concede ground against the run. (laughs) 
<laughs> and he's going to call as many single high structures as he needs to until you just stop running the ball. And then they called a lot of cover two. They were uh, 12th overall in cover two, but in the second halves of games, generally where they had a lead, they were third in cover two at 22.5%. And they could get away with that because they have Fred Warner. And if you watch my video on the Tampa 2 and how it's basically just inverted cover 3, you could consider that they were just continuing calling cover 3, but just a spicier version of it because they have Fred Warner. So, again, it wasn't that exotic of a defense. They really majored in two coverages, being cover 2 and cover 3. And they called, you know, some quarters here and there as like a trips check. Uh, They were 11th in quarters, but even then that was still a side dish compared to the entrees of, of cover two and cover three. And they, they just kind of stuck to those. And I I really do think that they were just more keen to out-talent everybody and say, we're better than you. We've got a great defensive line. We have the best linebacking core in the league. We have corners that'll beat the snot out of you. We have Talano Hufunga, who's just a human missile at safety. Um, you know, Jimmy Ward is a, a do-everything DB. for the, Like, they just had... 11 really, really damn good players on the field. So they they didn't have to be super sneaky. They could just do whatever they wanted. They executed so, so well. It's a sign of a great teacher, great coach. D'Amico is that. That's why he ends up, you know, on the top of all the head coaching lists and landing in Houston as the new head coach there. You could see the guys were, talk about getting players to play fast, right? Reducing that mental workload, increasing the understanding and just saying, Hey, it's this or this, choose and do it. Do it and do it fast. And they were playing so fast, even at the beginning of the season on defense. They really played that way all year at all levels. Everybody understood their role. Everybody understood how those roles mesh together on a defense, which is the goal. I mean, that sounds like, well, isn't every coach doing that? Every coach is trying to do that, but some with greater success than others. But I don't think any with greater success than D'Amico and you could see it on the field. Guys love playing for him because he just turns them loose and says, you're really good at this. I'm going to put you in the right spot. You make the call X or Y and go get them. Mm-hmm. And they all just pin their ears back and go. And it makes it really difficult. And they run to the ball. It's it's a super fun defense to watch. But as you said, at its core, it's pretty simple. I know it's cover three on early downs. Huh? get you in a long yardage situation then we're depending on if it's two by two or three by one we're either calling quarters or we're calling cover two and then you know maybe we'll play some quarter quarter half every now and then based on game plan if, if you have like an x receiver that we're a little bit afraid of and you know, want to play cloud to his side or something like that but it's more game plan specific but like they don't do anything crazy no and it reminds me of the early 2000s bears and when you listen to interviews from players in that era that were in the lovey system you know they was tampa two based again had a dominant middle linebacker who could run the pole but brian Erlacher would say we'd come out with five calls the entire game for the game yeah, yeah. we'd have five calls and we'd really only use three of them uh-huh. like we had the other two but we very rarely used them in fact when they got called we all kind of looked around I was like really are you <laughs> sure okay this time neat like and they get excited because there's a little variety but they knew what they were doing in those two or three calls it was such a well-oiled machine and san francisco was exactly the same way really the only time they got semi-exotic was sometimes with their blitz packages if they felt like they weren't getting 
home with four as much as they wanted to, or maybe if they really wanted to force them into giving one-on-ones with Bosa, they would call blitzes um, and basically be like, here's five guys, go ahead, leave Nick one-on-one. Yeah, right? pick. Yeah. Um, or they would they would call stunts a lot. They were fifth in third down stunt percentage, which is something you'd expect for a team that rushes for as much as they do. But um, they really game planned around giving Nick's giving Nick one-on-ones um, third and short they were 20th in terms of blitz percentage third and medium meaning third and three to six they were average they were 16th in blitz percentage and then third and seven again they were 13th so they slightly ticked up again when they just wanted to occupy blockers so that they could give their best guys one-on-ones simplicity 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 if you're good at drafting you don't really have to do a whole lot else honestly it's funny because we call it simple but when you look at how D'Amico especially replaces players on stunts you talked about their really high stunt percentage he uses defensive backs very creatively to like yeah they want to get both of those one-on-ones because he's a dominant end who when he's playing healthy and at the height of his powers is Mm -hmm. very difficult to stop with even double teams and they'll use him either as, hey, we are trying to get him that one-on-one or one-on-one and a half, which was more likely because very few teams left him one-on-one with anybody. But he would also use him a little bit like Kyle does in terms of using decoy plays on offense to move people around. D'Amico would use Bosa to move people and then slot blitz from nickel, right? Yeah. With guys like Jimmy Ward or, or Hafanga who can do it. And, you know, they'll change it up, right? It's never, it's not like, oh, when they do this, this guy's coming because then the next time they do the same thing. And it really is just to get Bosa free and that guy drops. And now the quarterback's like, well, last time I saw that look, which looked exactly the same pre-snap. So it looks simple. But again, that skill of mixing it and just that absolute speed, Mm -hmm. right? Everybody's clear. It seemed like they just meshed so well from so early. Everybody was clear on what they were doing. You never saw those guys pointing, right? You never saw the guys in the secondary like, come on, yeah. like that was your guy. What do you do? And you see a lot of defenses in the NFL do that. Very rarely you'd see two guys come together and be like, oh, it was a little wider than we wanted to go, but like, let's not do that again. Okay. And that was it. That was the level of conversation. Pretty much the only guy that would ever blow assignments was Hafunga. Just he's young, but like, that's it. It's just because it he's young. <laughs> and it was rare, and he knew what he did when he did yeah, it. That's yeah. the thing. So, again, just a sign of an extremely well-coached defense, a super fun defense to watch, a super effective defense. And, yeah, it's just if you like defensive football, which has definitely taken a backseat in the NFL, it was the 49ers defense last year was just joyful. Now, we've been singing the praises of D'Amico Ryans, who's no longer there. They did replace him this year with, in my opinion, one of the best possible guys for the job. Like I, I, I could not believe that they were so fortunate of a franchise to get Steve Wilkes to be their new DC. Wilkes, who went on a tear as the interim coach in Carolina, great leader, phenomenal in the locker room, and also a pretty damn good coach in his own right. I was kind of worried what they were going to do when they lost Amico, and then they got Coach Wilkes, and I was like, okay, they're fine, they're they're good. Super hard act to follow. We've talked. Obviously, we were huge D'Amico fans. I was. We were both huge D'Amico fans um, when he was drafted mm-hmm. as a player. He was drafted by your Texans. We got to watch his career. He's one of the smartest linebackers that played in the NFL during his tenure. Um, neither one of us 
were surprised that he became a coach. I don't think either one of us were surprised that he became a really good coach. Mm -hmm. So there was always going to be a little bit of drop off, but they got lucky that Carolina decided not to retain Wilkes. Like they decided to go in a different direction. We'll talk about that when we get to the Carolina episode, but Wilkes being available, he has a lot of the same qualities in terms of being a great leader. Guys absolutely buy into him, seems to be able to communicate quickly. Again, took over midseason, always a very difficult thing to do. And the team started playing better immediately and continued to improve and pull in the same direction. All great signs. So I think it's the best possible replacement. There's still going to be some drop off because D'Amico's just a superstar. He's one of the best, like uh, flat out one of the best coaches in the NFL, offense, defense, special teams, anything. Um, But boy, I love that they got they got Wilkes. Um, they also got Anthony Lynn with head coaching experience in his own right as their assistant head coach, running backs coach. They got Chris Forster. They got Brian Schneider, obviously Kyle and John, who we've talked about excessively over the years. As far as top of the power structure goes, hard to beat the 49ers, not going to lie. The handshake between Lynch and Shanahan deserves some praise and for franchises that are trying to figure it out some some scrutiny some viewing to say hey how does that work because of their talent acquisition strategy all the way down to the trade right for McCaffrey which was not universally at the time I thought it was honestly I still just because of what running backs are right I I was kind of like I don't know this was a lot for a running back but at the same time this was a team that didn't really give a shit about future assets. They're like, we we got to go now. Our roster is ready now. We got to do this thing. And I, I understand it from that perspective. But, you know, the the armchair GM in me was, was like, ah, I really would love to have those third rounders, you know. But I, I get it. Like, they're trying to win a Super Bowl, and so they don't really care about picks. Felt the same way. It was a really high risk, high leverage move for the 49ers. He was able to stay healthy. He immediately looked happier to me. I remember sending you a DM saying, I haven't seen him run like this since Stanford. Oh, he was running like a psychopath when he first got there. He was absolutely threshing. You could tell he was so happy to be, quote unquote, home in that system. And they leaned on him and it worked. And I don't think he would have been as good a fit for any other team in the NFL. He would have been productive. He would have been a good asset for many teams in the NFL. He's a great player. I don't think he would have been leveraged as well in any other spot in the NFL, which makes the compensation a little bit more palatable. It's still super high. It's it's still a second, a third, and a fourth in this past draft, and a fifth. And like it's... It's ridiculously high. It's a lot. (laughs) And it only looks even palatable or acceptable because he stayed healthy and he was wildly effective from the get-go, which is, again, a very hard thing to do in the middle of a season. But that is that conversation that the GM and the coach can have saying, no, he's going to come in, he's going to do this, he's going to unlock Debo, like he's worth it, just do whatever. Everybody else says, oh, they got milked. And they go, oh, yeah, and come out and go on an absolute tear, basically right up to the door of the Super Bowl. Do you think they would have even got to the NFC Championship without him? I don't know. He really turned things around even before Purdy 
really started to light things up. It was a couple of weeks before that, and CMC was the difference in those games, not Purdy. Then Purdy comes on, and it's one more layer on top, which, again, you couldn't predict at the time that they made the trade, but it is that synergy, and they did have everything in on all cylinders, which is how they made the trade in mindset. Like you said, we got to go now. We're ready. We are, quote-unquote, one player away, and it's this player. Everybody goes, a running back? All those picks for all the reasons. Well, I guess when you have everything else. <laughs> for all those reasons, it looks good inside their building because, again, they have an understanding of where they are in their cycle, how they've built their roster, what he'll do in their scheme, how happy he's going to be to be back there and be rejuvenated, be right near where he went to college. It just... It wouldn't have worked that way anywhere else. I still don't think it was quote unquote worth it, but if it was going to be even close to worth it anywhere, it was in San Francisco. So that that handshake between Lynch and Shanahan, really, really strong. They've misfired. All, all combos do, and they could have. Again, if he'd come in two weeks later and got an ankle injury and not played for the rest of the year, A, I'm with you. I don't think they make the championship game, and B, the trade is at that point universally panned see we told just cmc can't stay healthy blah 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 blah. so they needed some luck but strong vision strong execution it's gonna look good because it worked out but he wouldn't have been that good anywhere else also let's be honest that third round pick they would have used it on a running back anyway <laughs> so <laughs> who cares <laughs> who cares yeah for sure. uh, now in terms of assistant coaches uh their assistant coaches also are some of the very best in the entire NFL. Uh, we're going to bring him up every year. Uh, Chris Kasurik, know the name. Maybe the best defensive line coach in the NFL. He consistently churns out monsters in San Francisco, consistently takes in, uh, quote-unquote, reclamation projects. Every year. Man, you thought Javon Hargrave was dominant in Philly? <laughs> Just wait. Just wait. Chris Kasurik. One of the top three, I would say, position coaches, probably certainly one of the top three defensive line coaches in the NFL, might be one of the top three position coaches in the NFL, one of the very best in the business. And on offense, I want to highlight Brian Greasy because this was a move, Greasy moving from the booth to become the quarterback's coach of the 49ers. Everybody goes, look, he's just buddy with Shanahan. Shanahan's going to call the offense anyways. What's he really going to do? It's difficult for any of us on the outside to know what he actually did, what his role is. I got to say it was somewhat significant. And the fact that they went from an established starter in Garoppolo to a Mr. Irrelevant and bulldozed the championship game, I got to give him some flowers. More than that, they started with Trey Lance and then Jimmy and then Purdy. Like they went through three quarterbacks that all were very different. Yes. And made the NFC championship and maybe would have won it. If, if Purdy didn't get hurt. But again, I, I had my doubts and because my only real exposure to Greasy was in the booth. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, I don't, I don't know. Like maybe he's just a better coach than commentator. But I was kind of like, I don't know about that. But I mean, God, how do you argue with results? You can't. And he's got his hands full again. Normally, if we're singing the praises of a coach and saying, oh, they steamrolled. Well, you get an injury. To Purdy, which really derails the 49ers season right at the end, along with some other key injuries. And you trade away the established starter, and you've still got Trey Lance sort of lurking as an enigma in the wings. Like, normally a 
a team and a coaching staff that was that successful would be rolling into the next season going, we know what's going on at the game's most important position. They do not. So he's got as much work to do this season, even after last year's successful season. And that just kind of feels like the way of the 49ers, right? Nothing is very easy. They never take the sort of established path. They go their own way. They do their own thing, even with the CMC trade. And they just keep churning every year. Looking at the, uh, again, quote unquote skill position, we like to call them ball handlers here. Right. Over on the Bootleg Football Podcast. Uh, Christian McCaffrey is going as RB1, as expected, because he's Christian McCaffrey. Uh, he's in a great offense, with a great offensive line. They're going to feed him the ball. He's going to get catches. He's, he's, he's CMC, right? Until further notice, RB1, totally fine. Unless you're picking in the top four, you're not going to get him. Not going to see him. So if you still want to invest in the Niners offense and you don't want to risk it with either of the quarterbacks because you don't know which one's going to be the starter and you can't get Christian McCaffrey... Where do you go? George Kittle right now is going at around pick 60. Considering how good he still is after the catch, how talented he still is, how involved in the offense he still is, he's about as safe a bet as, at tight end as you're ever going to get. He's probably going to be on most of my teams because I happen to be somebody who invests early in tight end. Um, and then the debate is raging between Ayuk and Debo. Once again, another year, another... <laughs> Which one do we invest in at which value? I'm just going to listen to whichever one you say and pick the other one. You know I've been a Brandon Ayuk truther. I know. Since the moment he was drafted. I still think in terms of pure receiving skills, I still think Brandon Ayuk is a better receiver. In terms of all-around weapon, Debo. That being said, Debo is going to cost you around pick 34. Ayuk is going to be around pick 54. If we're value hunting, God, I know this is going to come back to bite me in the ass. (laughs) If we're value hunting, go with Brandon Ayuk. In all fairness, Ayuk has really improved as a player. He was a very good player coming in. He had his, we'll just call it his doghouse years. Yes. And then blossomed. He has continued to build on what was a very solid skill set entering the league, an explosive skill set. He has worked out his issues, I will say, meshed with Shanahan, the offense, and the quarterbacks, and become much more productive in multiple ways. He is a better player now than when he entered the league. That's all you can ask for from anybody. And he started with a high ceiling. Athletic player, very good in yak-based offenses, goes to a completely yak-based offense, yeah, all the arrows were pointing up. Got derailed a little bit, but it's how you react. And he didn't quit. He went back to work by all accounts, and he has come back a better and stronger player. I'm not completely sad to hear you say, go for Ayuk one more time. <laughs> one of these years is going to work. Right. <laughs> Broken clocks. Oh, man. If you also are just like EJ and you think I'm an absolute uh, raging moron for taking the bait, one more year. <laughs> Might be a little strong. And you're more of a Debo truther than an Ayuk truther. Or if you're more of a Purdy truther than a, a Trey Lance truther. Or, you know what, if you just want to play it safe and take George Kittle again like everybody other, every other sane human being, totally fine. There's a bunch of different ways to approach uh, the 49ers offense. Um, just don't do it my way unless you're a masochist. <laughs> 
But you can use uh, promo code bootleg over Underdog Fantasy. That will double your deposit up to $100. So if you want to get in on Best Ball Mania 4, which has a $15 million prize pool, uh, it's also a much easier format for a lot of people to deal with in season because you don't have to set lineups and <laughs> deal with you know fab budgets and waiver order it's just you you draft well and week to week whoever gets the most points that's who you get credit for so uh it's it really prioritizes stuff like this you know off-season preparation and going through rosters and uh you know speculating about systems and schemes and roles <laughs> and all the nitty-gritty stuff uh it really really rewards people who do the work in july and June and July, rather than the people who do the work in October and November. Uh, so once again, if you want to get in on Best Ball Mania 4, or if you want to do pick'ems during the season, either way, Underdog Fantasy, promo code BOOTLEG, they will match your deposit. Now, EJ, free agency. We talked about how talented this team was. Yep. We talked about how expensive this team was getting. Always. It was inevitable that they were going to say goodbye to some very, very good players, and unfortunately, they had to do so this year. I'm going to start with a kicker for the first time. Yes. Which is not something we do here on Bootleg. We are not a special teams podcast, despite your somewhat recent fascination with punters. Only the good ones. (laughs) Only the good ones. (laughs) Right. Robbie Gold has been an absolute rock for the 49ers. Someone they could count on in the kicking game really ever since he moved over to that team. He will no longer be with them. They did not re-sign him. Uh, one of the two tackles we talked about, Mike McGlinchey, the right tackle, moves on, goes to the Broncos. Charles Amenahu, on to the Chiefs. That feels like a very significant move. That for, one hurts. For both franchises. That one real hurt. Yeah. For people who pay attention to certainly D'Amico's defense and, and what the Chiefs needed, that was a savvy move on both sides. The 49ers couldn't pay him what he was worth. They were maybe hoping against hope that he would slip under the radar a little bit. Chiefs said... No, thank you. We're going to pay him quite a bit of money to come bolster our pass rush. Samson Ebucam goes to the Colts in a very similar role. But they played like 1% difference of the snaps for the 49ers. Amenahu was at 53% of the snaps, and Ebucam was 52% of the snaps. So overall, you're losing a full player or one player that played all of your defensive snaps. That's going to matter. Both of those guys played significant roles. Jimmy Garoppolo, we've talked about, is now a Raider. The other Jimmy, Jimmy Ward, is now a Texan helping D'Amico install the system down there in Houston. That's going to be a loss, they feel. They might improve athletically at this point in Jimmy's career, but in terms of a savvy veteran that understands the system, it's a big loss. Daniel Brunskill, the right guard, he signs with the Titans. He played about 50% of the snaps, mainly due to injury last year. But again, that's a key reserve that they've had to move on from. Very talented team and very talented teams have to do this. They have to make choices about very talented players because if you draft well and do well in free agency, you end up with an assemblage of great players with a lot of success knocking on the door of the Super Bowl and you can't pay them all. We didn't even mention Emmanuel Mosley, uh, who got $6 million to go play with the Lions. Uh, he's a great man corner, and we know the Lions, if you watch that episode, They play an absolute shitload of man coverage. Uh, That's kind of what they do all day, every day. And so they wanted Emmanuel Mosley to come and beat people up for a living up in Detroit. And that's what he does. Um, Aziz Alshair, maybe the best third linebacker in the NFL, goes to the Titans to be... He's going to be a starter. Well, he's he's not David Long. No. But he ain't far off. He will surprise some people. It's one that we probably should have violated in our notables. 
more so because of the impact he's going to have where he went. He was one of those players, and occasionally this happens uh, with teams where they end up three deep. And the third player, we talk about it a lot with running back rooms. In this case, it's a linebacker who was good enough to start on a lot of teams and actually gets poached to go start on another team. Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty interesting loss for the Titans because I thought they were going to keep Long, and then Long went to Miami to go to that freaking super team of a defense they, they're building there. Uh, but, you know, getting Al Shire to to replace long i was like okay i mean <laughs> you're still just fine at linebacker then and he only cost five million which reasonable given the current linebacker market where the top is making 20 like is he 25 percent the linebacker that roquan smith is no he's better than that way better than that. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's really really good deal for them in terms of the uh the talent they did keep uh carrie Hyder, uh because he's a million dollars and not Eight million. Uh, they kept him around to be a rotational piece in that defensive line. Uh, Tishon Gibson. They kept at a pretty reasonable two point nine million. Uh, Jawan Jennings, uh, slot weapon extraordinaire. Is he a receiver? Is he a tight end? Who cares? Big dude who catches the ball. <laughs> who cares? It's Jawan Jennings. Uh, and then Jake Brendel, really underrated center, very underrated center. Quick as a hiccup. Um, great leverage player like again he's not the biggest guy in the world so he does have a natural leverage advantage but he's super quick he's like just like a little tree stump of a of a center who's just tough to run over uh feels like you know these big six four defensive tackles are like stubbing their toe getting over him but he's just he won't get out of the way man he's tough he's really tough uh he's surrounded by two giants we talked yeah. about that and burford so. also is a fucking freak right like, so we can get away with that. I'm just going to, you aired grievances on a previous podcast. I'm going to air a grievance here. What's that? I'm so pissed at Tayshawn Gibson. <laughs> Why? Because he was really mid with the Bears. Oh, and then all of a sudden he goes there and he's great. He goes yeah. to D'Amico. <laughs> and a lot of people that didn't watch or focused on Jimmy Ward or Hufanga or their corners who play a very particular style, which is super fun to watch if you like corner play. Gibson kind of played the lights out last year. He was so good. At like 32? Like he yeah. was he was an old safety and he was great. And I was like, he was washed and didn't do what I hoped he would do as the second safety. He didn't even need to be the number one safety on the Bears. He had to be the foil to Eddie Jackson's deep safety, right? And he was just sort of painfully mid. He was okay, but nothing better. And he got older, and they let him go, and I was like, great. I think they can actually, which they did, replace him in the draft in Chicago. He goes to play for D'Amico, and like week after week, it's like, who's that? Gibson? Gibson? <laughs> Damn it. And good for him. Like, always happy to see players succeed. <laughs> you couldn't do it. No, you couldn't. Okay, fine. So a lot of people didn't pay attention. Older player. I, again, they re-signed him for under $3 million, and for the level of play he provided for them last year, it's a steal. Oh, it's a massive steal. Uh, he's just going to be a down-eater for them. He's he's going to start. He's going to play, again, assuming he's healthy, 90-plus percent of the snaps again. It's a great great value for them. Uh, in terms of third-party additions, you know, guys they added from outside the organization, Javon Hargrave was the big one. Again, they didn't do a whole lot of big money spending in-house because they really wanted to uh, finally get that dominant three technique that I feel like they, at least they think they've been missing since they traded Buckner. 
Um, you know, they drafted Kinlaw thinking that they could kind of be cute and, okay, we're going to replace Buckner, who's going to get a $100 million deal with Kinlaw, who's going to be cheaper, and we're going to moneyball this thing. And then it's like, oh, God, Javon Kinlaw's not DeForest Buckner. Okay. Uh, and so they're like, we got to fix this, and we have to still pay $20 million a year for a three technique. So they got Javon Hargrave to kind of fix, I don't want to call it a mistake. It was it was a gamble that just didn't didn't quite pay out for them. Uh, I'm, I'm sure if they could go back, they would have rather just kept DeForest Buckner, but whatever. Um, but yeah, they brought in Hargrave to, to give themselves a presence at three technique and uh, putting him right next to Bosa is going to be absolutely nasty. Isaiah Oliver brought him in. He's one of the best nickels in the league when he came out I thought he was a surefire first round pick uh, I thought he was going to be a great boundary corner mm-hmm. somehow just forgot how to find the ball in the air his early years in Atlanta and then found a home inside and has been a really good nickel last couple of years and again that was not the career arc I saw for him but hey he's 27 and he's still you know a starter good for him uh, John Feliciano, speaking of guys that I was really high on coming out of college, remember him in Miami? Uh, and he was, uh, he was like an undervalued interior offensive lineman. I was like, I really like this John Feliciano guy. And now he's early thirties, still playing, still starting. Good for him. Uh, Austin Bryant, they brought in Zane Gonzalez. They brought in Sam Darnold. Uh, <laughs> here we go again. I was, I, was I mean, this. <laughs> some people are speculating that if Purdy, can't go that it's gonna somehow be Sam Darnold and not Trey Lance what are we doing come on I think the ship may have sailed on that one (laughs) Sam Darnold has had more chances than most again because he was highly drafted draft status stays with you if you're highly drafted you'll get more chances every time and he's got street bears that out he's (laughs) got more than most is it a good system is it a good setup it is are we going to see a different Sam Darnold if he somehow ascends to that starting role? It might be better, but I don't think it's suddenly going to be great. He's QB3. Yes. If he's anything other than QB3, they got problems. <laughs> like that's, Something happened. It is what it is. Uh, also, uh, Cleveland Furl. They brought him in, and if anybody can fix him, it's probably Chris Kasur. That's He's the one this year, and strangely enough, this is the pipeline. Guys that were highly thought of and highly drafted usually uh-huh. by the Raiders. They've done it three times. They did Arden Key. They did Maurice Hurst. Now they've done Cleland Farrell. Like, it's just the pipeline. Like, Chris Caceric goes, oh, I want that guy in the draft. And he goes to, you know, Las Vegas. And then he's like, I'll wait. <laughs> oh, look. He I'll, didn't I'll get him out. in a few years. He it's didn't fine. Pan out. Guess what? <laughs> come on up to San Francisco. Let me help you out. And they usually come. They usually sign a one-year mercenary deal. They usually do well. It it you know what it reminds me of huh. the Nick Saban Coach Rehabilitation Center at Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Oh yeah, you know, like Bill O'Brien, oh, Lane Kiffin. Just keep yeah, naming them. All of them. They've all been there for a Sarkeesian, year. Uh, a Marone, Marone. Like there's just you could put a list together as long as your arm of coaches, and they all go to Alabama for a year or two. And then they all go get their next job. I was fresh- shocked they didn't pry Cliff out of Thailand. I, I was for sure. I was like, oh, Cliff's definitely going to Alabama. He feels, <laughs> he feels like the candidate. And this year's candidate for rehabilitation on the defensive line is 
Clellan Farrell, who was widely panned as a very high pick for the Raiders, never really worked out for them. Again, I'm with you. If anybody can turn that around, Chris Caceres got a great track record. Looking at the, the 49ers' own draft class this year, again, they traded away a bunch of assets for CMC. So they, I mean, their first pick wasn't until 87. Yeah. But there was quite a few players in this draft that passed the 87th pick. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, you could find value in this overall draft class of 200-whatever players it was, right? Um, That being said, I wasn't super enthusiastic about this. Like, they started out strong with Jair Brown. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, he's badass. He's great. He's a safety who plays like a linebacker. Uh, In their mold. He's like a 200-pound safety that was splitting doubles from guards and tackles and getting TFLs at Penn State. I was like, oh, he's psychotic. I love that kid. Perfect. (laughs) Uh, And then, you know, they come back with Jake Mooney as a top 100 pick. And, like, they're taking Robert Beal in the fifth round. I, I... I'll let you go through the whole class, but I just want to preface this by saying I was whelmed. I was barely whelmed with this. And even with Jair Brown. Now, we are starting off pick 87, round three. So you're talking about you're getting down towards the bottom of the top 100. But as you said, super deep draft. Still plenty of players on the board who we both thought had a lot of value Jair Brown, again, fits for their system pretty well, but I was like, I was whelmed with that one. I was like, yep, if he's going to succeed, good a place as any for him to go in the league, fine. Like, it was a fine start. Wasn't up or down. Then kicker, like 12 picks later. And I was like, okay, like for a team that is losing a rock in Robbie Gold, I I get it. Still feels early to me. I think he could have waited and still got him. All right, but I'm going to give you a little slack because I, too, would be worried moving on from Robbie Gold. Well, look at what happened to the Bears after they let Robbie Gold go. <laughs> Absolutely true, and many other teams who've let go long and established kickers because kickers are hard to get established. They they move quite a bit. Last pick in round three for them, 101, tight end Cameron Latu from Alabama. Whelmed with this one. Whelmed with him as a player. Um, thought there were... Um, a lot of different tight ends in this class and different ways they could have gone. Interested to know what they saw in him to select him that early. Like, if you'd select him in a couple of rounds later, like one of their fifth round picks, great, cool, good value. Third round was like, okay, why him over there, other there tight ends? There was a the run on tight end. Yep. But I was like, I mean, it doesn't mean you need to keep it going, you know? <laughs> you might lay off because of it. You can zag it. when people zig. That's, yeah. That was where I was at. So they come out, again, no first or second round picks, but they have three in the third round. That's a lot of ammunition. Three basically in the top 100. I mean, 101. I'm counting that as top 100. They come out with Brown, Moody, and Latu. That's very, ah, okay. I see the needs for all of them, but eh, I feel like, again, you could have done a little bit better for value. Now, Daryl Luter Jr., round five, pick 155. I get this pick because he's a lot, he's their type. Yeah. He's a lot like corners they pick and who work well in their systems. I'm like, all right, cool. They're kind of, I, I could see some Emmanuel Mosley in him, to be perfectly honest. Right. So, and yeah. again, you're replacing Emmanuel Mosley. So I got that. And in the fifth round, felt like value. Felt like they were sort of zigging when others zagged and said, hey, we're going to wait, get a guy that we know is going to work in our system that other teams don't necessarily value super highly. I thought that was a savvy pick. 
round five, 173, Robert Beal Jr., sort of the other edge from Georgia. Uh, we saw him in person a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm going to give Chris Eric the edge of the benefit of the doubt. I know he's going to be working with the outside linebacker coach more, but I was, again, sort of like, okay. Like, that was, that was all I got. Athletically, I was just really surprised because athletically he's he's not their type. And by that, I mean he's not athletic. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I was kind of like, okay. Yeah. Sure. And again, I think that's kind of, you know, this is the feeling that's being established. We're now, you know, solidly into day three of the draft. And we're looking at, you know, we're going back and seeing who's picked who and what, what teams are starting to stack up as a haul for the 2023 draft. And you're like, Okay, Brown, Moody, Latu, Luter, Beal. Okay. Like, okay, I think is the, the most I could muster for that. Then round six, they go from linebacker D. Winters out of TCU. This one. They I, This one, I, 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 I fucking hated it. I'm not going to lie. Like I, did I didn't like hate it. it, but I was like, I, even with their capacity to pick linebackers who others overlook, Dre Greenlaw was one. I love Dre Greenlaw. D. Winters is like Five eleven. D. Winters is no Drake Greenlaw like, to me, but they think he is. But I was like, okay, now I'm just I'm not eh anymore. I'm like, Ugh. next pick, round seven, tight end Braden Willis out of Oklahoma. We're talking about round seven picks, so we'll give him the benefit of the doubt or or some leeway, and it doesn't really matter if round seven picks don't work out. But I was like, all right, now we're sort of. I'm fully off the car because there's always players. And again, very deep draft. There were still players on the board that I liked more. Round seven, Ronnie Bell out of Michigan. I get this pick for them. This and one, I actually like Ronnie Bell. At, I, as a I, round I like seven pick. pick, I thought, okay, values. We're doing this sort of roller coaster of I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Ooh, I really like that. And then their final pick is probably the one I actually like the most. I really like Jalen Graham. Round seven, 255, linebacker Jalen Graham out of Purdue. Had a much higher grade on him than this. I would have been super happy with him in the top of the fifth, like bottom of the fourth, top of the fifth. I would have been 100% with that. I really like him. I could see how he fits in the system. I could see the usage. Don't know why he slipped. It's one of those guys that I think is much more talented than basically complete bottom of the draft, damn near Mr. Irrelevant himself. Maybe the pick kind of got me excited and when you're waiting for round seven for that. Overall, when I look at their draft class, I get it. I see the fit for like the top half. Then they sort of went super meh and then came back and threw me a, threw me a bone at the end with Jalen Graham. We often get accused for being too positive on this show and talking up every draft class and saying, oh, we like everything. This is proof that there are things mm. that we don't like. Yeah. Uh, again, we said a lot of good things about the Niners today, but we're going to be honest. We're always going to be honest. And this draft, at least at least for us, was just... And good. on its face, doesn't look great. But as in any draft, three years from now, we'll know. I know. Watch right. D. Winters being all pro. Just and if he is, me. great. Yeah. Like, again, we can give Lynch his flowers at that point, his props, and say, you did great. You saw stuff we didn't. That's why you're in the GM chair and we're not. Get it. On its face for whatever kind of snap or instant reaction in terms of value with all the choices they had. Quite a few, now lower choices, but a bunch of them. Just felt like they could have made slightly better swings to me. We'll see. We don't know yet. 
In terms of UDFAs, they actually did have a, a few that we were pretty big fans of. Jack Coletto, uh, I mean, God, if there's any place he was going to go to, it's the 49ers because they love versatile fullbacks that <laughs> can also that loves catch fullbacks. and also play linebacker and play special teams. Like, he's he's such a 49er. Like, just have him follow Juszczyk around and say, go learn from him, be on the practice squad for a little while. You know, you're next in line. Uh, love that pickup for them. And that's probably why Coletta went there, so that he could literally just go learn from Kyle Juszczyk. Uh Corey Luciano, the center out of Washington, you're a big fan of. You know. I'm not necessarily a big fan. I'm a fan. Uh, did see him at his pro day. And strangely enough, he and Jack have the same agent. Really? Yes. Huh. And she got both of her clients into the 49ers, so I sent her to Oh, is him. it Molly? It is. Really? <laughs> yes. She oh. represents both Corey and Jack. So shout out to Molly. Um, and uh, saw her at both pro days because uh, Jack was Oregon State. And those were the two pro days I went to was Oregon State and Washington. She's got to have like a million Delta miles at this point. She's going all over the place. Uh, she is a world-class traveler, by the way. She is. I aspire to be anywhere near <laughs> as smooth a traveling as, as she is ever. Um, and then the last one we really liked, a guy we met at Shrine Bowl, Deshaun Jameson, the defensive back from Texas. I'm just calling call him defensive back. Some list him as a corner, some list him as a safety. Yes. Really, yes. <laughs> uh, smart player, um, super tough. Don't know why he didn't get drafted. Had good pedigree, played in a high-profile program, had good results. I thought he was uh, certainly effective enough to get drafted. Um, seemed solid enough when we talked to him in terms of interview savvy as coming off as a player that could add real value to a team. So don't know if there's something in medical, something off the field. Um, his testing wasn't great, but it matched what you saw on the field. And he was still very effective that way. Thought he would have been drafted. Great get for them. All right. All of that brings us finally to the report card where we give either a positive, a negative, or a straight up even or no change grade to four categories, front office, coaching, offense, and defense. Uh, front office, I understand the argument to go negative on this one, uh, but I'm going to go even, uh, again, just because we can't quite judge the draft class yet, uh, and I understand that we are we are critical of the CMC trade, even if we understand it. And I understand that they did lose a bunch of talent. They got expensive so that they could pay one player and Javon Hargrave. Like, <laughs> there's criticisms, but at the same time, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. So I, I would argue for just an even there. Uh, coaching, we love Steve Wilkes, but you can't go anything other than down from D'Amico Ryans, in my opinion. So uh, I, I know that you probably also agree that that's, that's probably a pretty pretty solid down there. Uh, offense and defense, you and I are basically just even on both. Uh, again, when you look at losses and additions through free agency in the draft, I struggle to say it's worse talent because it's the 49ers and saying that they're worse, it just doesn't sit right with me because they're an elite franchise and still an elite roster. But I wouldn't say that they're better than last year talent-wise they're just still top five. I, again, I know it sounds negative, but like it's just acknowledging that they successfully treaded water this offseason without getting significantly worse, which is still a win, probably. 
they didn't offload a bunch of talent. They still have some of the most dynamic talent, especially well, on both sides of the ball, but on offense especially. When you look across that offense and you look at all the players and all the things that they can do, it's one of the most you know, multiple or diverse offensive groups of players in the league. You can do so much with so many of them, all the way down to the fullback. The quarterback question sort of hangs cloud over it. Okay, who's going to be pulling the trigger for that offense and making the yak machine go? I think they'll settle it out, but they're surrounded by so much talent. They really didn't lose a lot of them. So straight across feels the same for offense and for defense. They imported some talent. They lost some talent. And again, neutral for the talent side because we are splitting talent and coaching for defense. We already gave them a negative for coaching. We're not going to give them a double negative when we get down to defense. Talent-wise, feels very similar. They had some key losses. They had a key addition in a similar area. They think they've made replacements both through free agency and the draft. Again, steady as she goes feels like the right thing to say. And look, steady as she goes got you 13 wins last year. And the NFC Championship game. Not a bad thing. As long as they just didn't go backwards, that was a positive for them. And they didn't go backwards. In terms of ceiling and floor, this one's kind of tough Yes, for me. Because I think the NFC is better than people give it credit for. It is. Um, and just because of some of the opponents that the Niners are going to have to deal with this year, they're not going to win 13 again. Doesn't feel like it to me either. That being said... They could still get back to the NFC Championship game with 11. So I'm going to go with 11. I know you're going with 11 as well. Yep. The floor, just because the talent is so good, I'm going to go at eight. But, <laughs> but, but, I reserve the right roughly halfway through the season if the quarterback situation falls apart again. Yeah. You know, if Brock Purdy turns into a pumpkin, if Trey Lance gets hurt, uh, if Sam Darnold is still both. Sam Darnold or <laughs> yeah. both, um, and it's a real shit show, I, I reserve the right to amend my floor projection to be slightly lower than eight. Well, I am slightly lower than eight at seven, only very slightly. And it really is the quarterback uncertainty. It's how quickly they get that resolved. I think they have at least two good options. We'll see how far Trey has come. Because, yes, even if he fixed the physical flaws, that's that's key and important. But there's still a lot to playing quarterback, which we saw from Brock Purdy very quickly at a high level when he came in. The processing, um, this is a demanding offense in terms of what it requires the quarterback to read. He did it very well and very quickly. So, again, I think they have two viable options. It'll be fascinating to see which one of those wins out, how quickly or not. Purdy is really healthy, who they settle on, uh, who the team kind of rallies behind. Um, two quarterback setups don't typically work very well, so they are going to have to make a decision. What's, if that's what's the old saying? If you have two quarterbacks, you have none. Don't really have one. <laughs> yeah. It'll be fascinating to see how quickly that gets settled and how long it stays once it's settled. If it's very early in the season, even from the first game, somebody comes out as a starter, plays well, and they start rolling things off, they're going to be closer to the ceiling. If that drags on for a month or five weeks or six into the second month, it'll lower their win total. They could be closer to the floor. All right. Finally, dare I say mercifully, we're wrapping up the 49ers episode. Tomorrow, we're back with the NFC West recap where we choose a division winner. 
We choose rookies of the year. Mm-hmm. We choose our favorite free agents, free agent additions for the entire division. We choose offensive player, defense player, MVP, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we recap the entire division, and we we make those all important predictions that will surely not come back to bite us in a few months. No, no, never. So make sure to join us for that. And then next week we're hitting the AFC West and uh, and the absolute uh, uh, destruction derby that we expect that division to be. Because uh, everybody's just going to beat everybody up over there. So, yes, lots more to come. Uh, EJ, I'm going to go to bed. I'm not feeling too great, as you can probably hear my voice. Uh, it's be- all right. We'll we'll call this one good and closed. <laughs> if we have inspired you as a 49ers fan and you feel hopeful about this season, make sure to head over to Homage Clothing, homage.com. Check out all their selections. They have a great NFL license, about 20 to 30 designs for each team, so you can certainly see something if you just happen to be watching this to check up on what your foe is going to be doing and you are a fan of a rival NFC West team, they've got great stuff for you as well. So everything you buy from Homage, they're extremely soft t-shirts or hoodies, all helps support the podcast if you use the link in the description. I'm going to go take some music. It's time. <laughs> See you guys later.